the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. We have the weird described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. Cup of murder. It's a wonderful thing when family sticks together. Well, usually. On May 22nd, 1951, a truly terrible man was born. A man who, with the help of his cousin, took the lives of at least 12 young women. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Kenneth Bianchi was born on May 22nd, 1951, in Rochester, New York. His mother, who was an alcoholic and sex worker wanted better for her son, and gave him up for adoption when he was just 12 weeks old. He was adopted that August by the Bianchi family. Kenneth was an only child, and his parents doted on the young boy. But even at a young age, this boy was a problem. His mother would describe him as a compulsive liar, a habit that began the minute he began speaking. After noticing he had a habit of falling into a trance-like state that left him inattentive and with his eyes rolled into the back of his head, five-year-old Kenneth was diagnosed with petite mal seizures. This was the first in a long line of medical professionals Kenneth's parents would send him to. His random outbursts of anger and behavioral problems sent him to a number of psychiatrists who would later, when he was 10, diagnose him with passive-aggressive personality disorder, which, coupled with his high IQ, became a dangerous combination. When his father died in 1964, Kenneth's mother was left to raise the teenage boy on her own. She worked constantly and, on a number of occasions, kept him out of school for long periods of time. Despite this, Kenneth was able to graduate in 1970 and married his high school sweetheart, though it was a short eight-month marriage. After attending college for a short while, he dropped out and suddenly began drifting around from job to job. One of these jobs was a security guard at a jewelry store that lended him the opportunity to steal pieces and either give them to his girlfriends or the sex workers he employed. In 1977, when Kenneth was in his mid-twenties, he moved to Los Angeles, California, where he started spending all of his time with his older cousin, Angela Bono. Angela was everything Kenneth wanted to be. He, in Kenneth's mind, was successful, had nice clothing, fancy jewelry, and a talent for getting women to bend to his every whim. Before long, these cousins went into work together, sex work. They became pimps and would cruise around Los Angeles looking for women to employ, often posing as LAPD. 
They decided on two teenage runaways, Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears, as their new employees, and planned on forcing the girls into sex work. However, a chance meeting with a lawyer left Becky the opportunity to leave her situation before things escalated. Emboldened by Becky's escape, Sabre decided to run away from the men. So now they were left with no women to pimp out and no income. They set out to find new victims. And not just that, but they had recently purchased a, quote, trick list from a woman in the business with the names of men who frequented sex workers. She had her friend, Yolanda Washington, deliver the list to Angela Bueno in October of 1977. When she delivered the list and Angelo discovered it was a fake, he took his anger out on the woman who had simply been the messenger. While it's not totally clear what happened while she was with the cousins, the 19-year-old's body was found naked, cleaned, and with faint rope marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. She had been, from what experts can surmise, captured, raped, and strangled to death. Yolanda was the first in what would be 12 women in total that Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono picked up around Los Angeles, often using the police officer ruse, before abducting and torturing them and dumping their bodies all over the city. They became known as the Hillside Stranglers. All of these women were sexually abused and strangled, but some showed signs that the men were experimenting with methods of torture, like lethal injection, electric shock, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Those like Christina Welker, 20, who was found on November 20, 1977, on a hillside by hikers. She had the marks like her fellow victims on the neck and wrists, but also had her breasts covered in bruises, blood seeping from her rectum, and puncture marks that were later determined to be the product of the men injecting her veins with Windex. Other victims were Judith Lynn Miller, just 15, who was killed on October 31, 1977, after being repeatedly raped and sodomized. And Lisa Caston, 21, killed on November 6, 1977, and found naked near a country club. Jane King, 28, who was killed on November 10, 1977, but when found, was too decomposed to determine exactly what torture was inflicted on her. Dolly Cepeda, 12, and Sonia Johnson, 14, who were both killed on November 13th and found on the 20th, discarded in a trash heap. Laura Wagner, 18, killed on November 29th, 1977, and when found, showed signs of burn marks amongst the normal torture signs. Kimberly Martin, 17, who was found on December 4th, 1977, in a deserted lot, naked, tortured, raped, and strangled to death. And finally, Cindy Lee Hudspeth, 20, who was found on September 17, 1978, in the trunk of her own abandoned car that had been pushed off the side of a cliff. All of these women bore a striking resemblance in their manner of death, so police were pretty certain early on that this was the work of a serial killer. At some point in the investigation, Kenneth Bianchi applied for a job at the LAPD and even went on several rides with police while searching for these so-called hillside stranglers. This emboldened behavior enraged Angelo, who threatened his cousin's life if he didn't move away. He followed his cousin's orders, like always, and left L.A. in May of 1978 and headed to Bellingham, Washington. But the relocation didn't stop Kenneth from trying to keep up the murderous plan that seemed to be working so well. 
On January 11, 1979, Kenneth Bianchi lured two Western Washington students into the home that he was working security for. Inside, Karen Mandick, 22, and Diane Wilder, 27, were both strangled to death in Kenneth's first solo murder. But apparently they were better together because Kenneth left a number of clues that led police straight to him. Had Angelo not sent him away, the duo may have gone years killing women without any detection. A look into Kenneth's background linked him to the address of the two victims, and once brought in, he quickly implicated Angelo. At trial, Kenneth pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming that he was suffering from multiple personality disorder and that it was Steve Walker that committed the crimes. However, when a psychiatrist mentioned that most with multiple personalities have at least three, Kenneth quickly created another named Billy. No one believed his defense, so Kenneth agreed to testify against his cousin in order to get a lesser sentence. Guess blood isn't thicker than water. In the end, Kenneth Bianchi received six life sentences, but has a chance for parole, while Angelo Buono received life without the possibility of parole. And one last fact before you go. Kenneth Bianchi, who was born and raised in Rochester, New York, prior to moving to L.A., is suspected of being the infamous and still unknown alphabet killer, though the case still remains unsolved. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 23rd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This is a daily podcast that tells you what happened on this day in true crime history. In short, easy to listen to episodes that you can finish on your commute or while you enjoy your morning coffee. So make sure you check back every morning. My name is Karina. I am the creator and host. You can find Morning Cup of Murder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have also set up a Patreon where you can donate a small monthly contribution to the podcast. All those links are in the episode description. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.